want to, we're going to share from God's word again today from Nehemiah. And you notice the second brick up here about faith. We're going to be talking about that. But um, I want to say just a comment for a second about our men. And uh, we have some incredible men in this church, men that love the Lord, men that love God's word, men that love their families, men that love you. And Stoss being one of them, but uh, we got a whole church full of men like that. And uh, I don't do a good enough job acknowledging them or directing some of these messages towards them. But uh, guys, I want you to know that uh, I have underlined your name in this sermon here today as a man of this church. And uh, I've firmly believed since I've been in the ministry, even before that, being in other industries, that uh, God has given us as men an incredible blessing incredible privilege being husbands and fathers, but also an incredible responsibility. And God is very clear in his holy word that we are to be the leaders of our family, that we are to be leaders in the Lord, that we're also to be leaders in this world. You may not have a CEO job at a Fortune 500 company, but uh, I got news for you. As an ambassador of Jesus Christ, you're a leader wherever you go, and I thank God for the way you lead. It's a story told about the battle in Italy as the Allied forces hit the beaches there. The fighting was fierce. The Germans did not want to give up that territory. Stories told about a young soldier that was in the middle of that conflict, and it was brutal. And uh, mortar rounds going off everywhere, artillery rounds going off, automatic gunfire, machine guns going off, and it was an incredibly brutal, desolate battle. And a young soldier was doing everything he could do to survive and fire off a few rounds. And uh, he was advancing, and he realized, hey, there's a big hole up there. So he rolled over and jumped in that hole and realized he had a little bit of cover, but he began digging fiercely in the bottom of that foxhole to get even deeper down the hole to get even more protection against the incredible, brutal fire that was coming his way. And as he dug down and dug down and dug down, came across a little bright, shiny object down there in the bottom of that hole as he was digging. Kind of unearthed it and kind of wiped off the dirt. And guess what he found? He found a cross. He looked at that and wondered, why, why would that be here? And how did it happen that there's a cross here in this hole? He understood that uh, he'd seen it before but didn't really understand it. And so as he continues that, that digging, he kind of digs it into his pocket and uh, next thing he knows, here comes another soldier that jumps through the air and jumps in that foxhole with him. And so he happened to look and realize that on one collar, that fellow that jumped in there, there was some captain bars, so he realized he was an officer. But then the officer turned, and he noticed on this little collar over here, there was a cross. And so he realized that that man that had just jumped in the foxhole was a chaplain. And so he looked at that chaplain, and he said, Man, am I glad you're here. Can you please tell me how this thing works? I want you to think about the significance of that thought, though. Even not really knowing the meaning of this cross, he realized that there had to be some power in it because he'd seen it so many times before. How does that cross work? What is the meaning of that cross? And is there, is there actually power in this little piece of metal here, the cross? Is there power in the cross? Well, you know, that's a significant question for you and I today as well as we ponder the thought of the cross. Is there really power 
in the cross. What does that cross mean to me personally? Has that cross, the significance of that cross and what it stands for and what it symbolizes changed my life? Does it affect the way I live? Does it really, truly make a difference? How does that cross work? I mentioned last week kind of where we'd been, and I'm going to touch on that again today, and I'm going to continue touching on it because I want to reinforce where I hope that we're going as a body of believers here, men, especially us, as we understand these things. You look back at Easter with me. Remember we talked about Thomas. And Thomas needed to see the marks of Calvary on Jesus Christ before he believed. Well, we realize that if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, if we truly understand the meaning of the cross, if we truly understand what we have in him, the world should see marks of Calvary on us as well. The next week we talked about Genesis, the crossing of the Red Sea. We realized there was two very significant points to that story that we covered that day. There's all kinds of meaning to that story. It was a great miracle. But God directed the Israelites to do two things. First and foremost, to all of them as a whole, he said, move forward. Go forward. He says, we're not going backwards to Egypt. We're not going back to slavery and captivity. He says, I have something so much more for you going forward. But then he also directed a personal comment to Moses. He says, Moses, put out that staff over the water. And when he did that, you know what happened? You know the story, though. The waters parted. God was wanting to understand, you and I, the acts of faith in relationship to what he desires to do in our life. That we have to have faith if he's going to move. Last week we began our study of rebuilding the wall. A short little study in the book of Nehemiah. Last week we talked about prayer. You remember what the important part about that sermon was last week? Am I burdened in my prayer life for the same things that burden God? Do I have a heart for the things that burden God? Do I anguish over the things that God anguishes over? The things that are on his heart. Do I see the world like he sees it? Last week we talked about Nehemiah. That he was living in exile in Persia. He was a cupbearer. He was a privileged person living in the court of the king. He had a responsibility there. A man that he knew came back from Jerusalem and shared the devastation of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, when he heard the status and the desolation of Jerusalem, it says that he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Nehemiah anguished over God's holy city. The story we're going to read this morning picks up four months later. You know, the story, unless you understand the Greek words for the months, it was four months later. For four months, Nehemiah prayed and he anguished and he fasted, but he did something else. He also planned. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. Nehemiah 2, 1. Stand with me this morning, if you will, out of reverence, respect to the reading of God's holy word. It says this in, this, in uh, chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. I want you to remember that. He became dreadfully afraid. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and it burns and its gates are burning with fire? 
Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when, you, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, speak to our hearts this day, Father, as we might see faith in a new light. Father, speak to us personally, Father. Put our name on one of these scriptures here today, Father, that we all might leave here in just a little bit different than the way we came in. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm going to keep your finger in Nehemiah there. I'm going to get to the rest of the story here in just a second, but look at verse 20 for just a moment. All The very last verse of chapter 2. Nehemiah had surveyed Jerusalem. He'd made a plan. He'd talked through his plan a little bit. He was there for three days. That's, a, that's an amazing little Christology, thinking about Jesus Christ ultimately coming, seeing Jesus Christ in the second chapter of Nehemiah. He was there for three days. Chapter 20 says this, though. He said, So I answered them and said to them, and he's talking to some of his naysayers. He's also talking to the rest of the nation of Israel here. He said, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will rise and build. I want you to think about the profound thought there. Nehemiah, that's astonishing, confident faith. He realized that God was going to do a great work. He hadn't done the work yet. He had barely gotten permission from the king and come to Jerusalem, looked around a little bit, hadn't started it. He realized that he did not have one master carpenter, not one masonry person. He didn't have any of the people that he needed. You know what he had, though? He had God. He had God in his life. Nehemiah's strong faith expected something more from God. Do you hear that? Nehemiah's strong faith expected something more from God. Do you live live today with great, confident, expecting faith? I have faith in God. Do you have faith in God that he's going to do something new? That he's got everything under control? That he has a great future for you? That he has an incredible plan for your life? You know, that plan sometimes involves hardships. What about those hardships? Well, let me tell you, sometimes those hardships build our faith because maybe we've gotten a little lazy in our faith. Maybe we've gotten a little lackadaisical. So I need to get my focus sharpened. I need to get my focus back where it belongs. Is there a prevailing hope in your faith? That's a huge question. Is there a prevailing hope? In my faith, do I balance my faith? Do I base my faith on hope, eternal hope? Is there a certainty? Isaiah 40, 31. Those that wait upon the Lord. Those that hope in the Lord, it says. Shall renew their strength. They shall mount over the wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. God, over and over in His Holy Bible, tells us that we can have hope. And hope in the Bible isn't a matter of rolling the dice. Hope is certainty. Hope is knowing that God has us under control. That God has a great plan for my life. That God's going to give me this incredible life. Because why? Because He desires to. All I need to do is stay in the center of his will. All I need to do is trust him. I need to have faith. The question for you and I in our faith, what am I doing with this cross? What am I doing with this cross? What difference does this cross truly mean in my life? Today's scripture we see, if you read the whole chapter there, we're not going to take our time to read it all, but I'm going to pull out a few points here. Today's scripture we see Nehemiah faces obstacles. Over and over and over again, we see Nehemiah has incredible obstacles. Listen very carefully. You and I face the same obstacles. 
we face the same hardships, the same turmoils. I'm here to tell you the enemy, just like the enemy against, against Nehemiah, there were three guys. Samblet, Geshem, and Tobiah. Three men that came against him. But they had a whole group of folks that were coming against him too. He faced incredible obstacles just getting the project done. But these three obstacles we're going to look at today, personal insecurity. That's a huge one in yours in my life. Light and momentary afflictions, circumstances. Circumstances can throw us off sometimes. We get all focused on the circumstance and take our eyes off the Savior. And finally, pessimist. You know, we have pessimists in our life sometimes, and they can take our focus off as well. How do we deal with these obstacles? Or any obstacles that come our way? We need to deal with confidence. Confidence that God has something better beyond this situation. God has something so much better for us in our life. Continue moving forward. In Psalms 27, we see David having an incredible declaration of his faith. David had been hounded by Saul, Saul wanting to kill him. David, at the age of 13 or 14, had been told he's going to be the king of Israel. And all of a sudden, he's got the whole nation of Israel and King Saul coming after him, wanting him to die. You know what he says, though? I'm just trusting God. He says this, Psalms 27. It's a beautiful Psalms. Psalms 1, he says, the Lord, Psalms 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then chapter, verse 13 says this, the same chapter. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, he says. He said, I would have lost heart. I would have been lost. I would have missed out if I had not believed in seeing the Lord in the land of the living. How many times have we been there before in our life and see things fall apart? How do we, how do we handle personal insecurity? How do we handle personal insecurity? I can tell you very simply. Figure out who we are in God. Figure out our relationship with God. I want you to know this. There's too many people walking through this life right now insecure that are Christians. Too many people walking through this world right now that have identity crisis. Who am I really? Who am I really? I want you to see something precious here. It's back in Nehemiah 2, what we talk about. Second verse. Nehemiah was going in before the king. He says, therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart, so I am dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah realized he can't go to the king. He's not allowed to do that. But he was going to go to the king anyway with what he had. He was going to the king that the king might see the issue that Nehemiah had on his heart. He was afraid. But then it dropped down to verse 4. What does it say? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think he left the room and went and prayed for two or three hours. You know what he did? He just prayed right then. But he can do that because he'd been praying all the way along. I want you to hear something significant about having faith. If we truly have faith, before we talk to ourselves, before we talk to somebody else, we need to talk to God. You know, a lot of times we can talk ourselves into making the wrong turn. A lot of times we can talk to ourselves and make the wrong decision because I'm kind of figuring this out myself. Or, think about this, how many times do we talk to people and they kind of lead us down the wrong road or, you know, if they're not lining up where we want to go, we kind of say, well, no, no, thanks. Or they might convince us to go a direction we hadn't even thought about. Well, where does God know this? When we have faith, before we talk to ourselves, 
before we talk to other people, we talk to God. Nehemiah got asked a question. What did he do? It says right there, I prayed to God. He can just be, God, give me the wisdom to say. God, speak to my heart. God, let me know what you want me to say. God, give me strength right now to speak the truth. God wanted to do a great work through, through Nehemiah, and Nehemiah realized that. God, Nehemiah realized that this was all coming from God. I want to share a very quick personal story. My daughter Abby probably had the hardest time in school of all my kids. It got so bad in seventh grade that she refused to go back to school in the eighth grade. I'm sorry, eighth grade. And uh, the, what the problem was is she got bullied. People didn't like the way she looked. People didn't like her. They kind of, you know, that's a tough age. And all teenagers are that age. Because parents probably realize that. Your kids have had some trouble there. But it was brutal for Abby. Christian's son, Matthew, man, he just skipped right through it. And Julian went fine too. But Abby just, Abby seemed to be the target of a lot of abuse. When Abby was, went back in eighth grade there, one day she was sharing with a friend on the bus. And the next day was Friday, and she getting on the bus in the afternoon, and uh, the principal comes on the bus, walks on the bus, says, Abby, come here. So Abby got off the bus, and he took her down there, didn't have enough time, the bus getting ready to leave, so he said, you come to my office on Monday morning. Well, Abby came home just traumatized. Could not believe what she'd done. I, I, I don't know what I did. I didn't, do, I didn't do anything wrong, Dad. And uh, she was upset, crying through the weekend, just traumatized for the whole weekend, paralyzed on Monday morning going to school. Well, we asked her, do you want us to go with you? No, Dad, that's okay. So she went in there. Principal was upset because some parent had called and said that this lady, Abby Stewart, is trying to invite my daughter to church, and I don't want to invite my daughter to church. So the principal told Abby, don't do that anymore. Well, Abby came home and said, Dad, I didn't know that was wrong. Abby, it's not. I said, I'll go talk to your principal if you want. No, Dad, that's okay. I said, you keep doing what God tells you to do. Her senior year of high school was tough, too. Hard times. But you know what Abby had? I don't want you to miss this. Abby had you all. People in a church that loved her. People in a church that affirmed her. People in a church that demonstrated faith to her. Sunday school teachers that loved on her. That taught her about Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, Abby today is a walking miracle. She could have turned out one or two ways. But you know what happened to Abby in her formative years when she was here in our home and with you guys? She came to understand who she was in Jesus Christ. She realized there's something so much bigger than the bullies, so much bigger than just being picked on, so much bigger. Little Abby is my, my missionary. She's the one that loves the Lord. She's got an incredible calling of God now in her life to, to work with senior citizens. And it's so easy to watch her and to see her that God is just flowing through her. And I don't take any credit for that at all. I take credit for getting out of the way of God maybe flowing through me as a dad and a mom. But listen very carefully. It's huge, men, for our children and for our wives. How many people that you maybe know personally are living out there in this world that are insecure? They have an incredible identity problem. They just don't know who they are in Christ. And so they go through the whole life trying to figure it out. Who am I really? Who am I really? People ask people sometimes, well, who, who are you? Well, I'm a president of a bank or I'm this or that. No, you're not. That's what you do. Who am I really? I'm a child of the living God. I'm a princess or I'm a prince. I belong to Jesus Christ and I got, I got a life here. 
Personal insecurity is the same thing as having an identity crisis. Not who I am. Who am I? I want to go dig deep here for just a moment here this morning about this. Who am I really? This is a profound statement. I'm going to read it to you. I read it in in one of my books this week. But it says this, the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is that God offers repentance for those who sin. Think about that. The glory of the gospel, the glory of what Jesus Christ did upon that cross is the fact that God offers you and I repentance for our sin. He forgives our sin, and listen very carefully. This is what that statement means. He offers a changed life, a changed life that's no longer where it's been, no longer destined for hell, no longer living with the burdens of all this stuff, no longer carrying all the weight and all the baggage we need to carry, no longer living in jail on this earth, walking around like we're free but we're in bondage. God, the glory of the gospel is he gives us an opportunity to change our lives. Most evangelists would tell you probably the biggest problem with people accepting Jesus Christ in the, in the church today is the fact they don't understand repentance. If we don't get anything else this morning out of God's word, I want you to hear this. Repentance. It's a changed life. The question is, have you truly repented? Let me offer this little thesis here. You haven't repented unless you've changed. Do you hear that? You have not repented if you have not changed. Why? Because the gospel, Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to repent, which means he gives us the opportunity, but he also gives us the power to change from going that way to going this way now. We're no longer destined that way to live this sorry, mediocre, life burdened down with all these things here. He's saying, I'm giving you an opportunity to change. I want to take your life your life that's just in ruins here, and I want to set your feet on solid foundation. I want to give you an incredible life here. God tells us, hey, understand the cross. What are you doing with the cross? Have you really changed? I agree with most of those evangelists. I think a lot of us just haven't got it. We haven't figured out. We have not repented unless we changed. It's not enough, guys, to just say, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Or maybe in tears, I'm sorry. It, it, it takes more. There needs to be action, just like my brother Saw said here. There needs to be action involved with repentance. It's taking God's point of view. I'm no longer taking Gary's point of view. I'm taking God's point of view. We need to admit that I'm going in the wrong direction. I no longer want to go that way. I want to go this way. You have not repented if you haven't changed. I want to think about this. Repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is behind you. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around. Go in the right direction here. There needs to be change in our life. If there's not change in our life, if we don't feel inside us that, hey, I have the privilege to change, there's something different about me today. Do we still fall? Do we still sin? Absolutely. Why? Because we're made of flesh. We're born into sin. We are sin when we're born. And it's going to be a lifelong fight. I've seen men that were serving faithfully all of a sudden fall. Why? Because they took their eyes off Christ. Chuck Colson. Many of you a little bit older probably remember his name. Maybe our students have studied him in in school. But a few years after he got out of jail for being involved at Watergate, he went on the Bill Buckley TV show. Some of you guys that are really old maybe remember that show. And Bill Buckley was interviewing him about his conversion in jail and about the, the, the condition of jails in America today. There's a fellow by the name of Jack Eckert who was the founder of Eckert Drugstores. 
watching that show that night in Florida. And he realized, because he involved in his state's politics, he realized that we got major problems in our criminal system. So he called Chuck Colson, hey, would you come down here? I saw you on TV. Told him all the problems they had. Say, yeah, I'll be happy to come down there. Well, he began touring around the state, going to different prison places and different, talking to different wardens and talking to different state officials about the criminal system, trying to kind of help them reform the criminal justice system down there. And everywhere they went, Jack Eggert would introduce, hey, this is my friend Chuck Colson. I met him on TV. And they say, he's saved. I'm not. I wish I was. Over and over, almost a year long. Hey, this is my good friend, Chuck Colson. I met him on TV. He's saved. I'm not. I wish I was. Well, every time they finished these meetings and get on the plane or the car, whatever it's going, Chuck Colson took the opportunity to share Christ with Jack Eckert. Well, Jack Eckert took over a year to decide that he wanted Jesus Christ, but he called Chuck Colson one time when Chuck Colson was back up in Washington, D.C. He said, you know what? I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So Chuck on the phone talked to him about the whole relationship, and he understood. He says, you are. Let me pray for you. So he prayed for him. Jack Eckert went back. He owned 1,700 drugstores around the nation, second largest drugstore chain in America. He was in one of his drugstores one day after he got saved and realized, you know, I don't want these magazines in my store anymore, Playboy and Penthouse. And so he got on the phone and called his president and said, hey, I want you to take all those Playboys and all those penthouses out of my drugstores. And the president said, being a good businessman, he says, man, that's $3 million worth of revenue. Are you sure you want to do that? He said, absolutely. Get them out of there. So you know what happened? And the word got out there that Eckert was, take, Eckert was taken out of there. You know what happened to Eckert's stock? Went to the ceiling. People were so excited that he took that stand for Jesus Christ to get those magazines out of their drugstores. And so the other drugstores started wondering. So he began calling Jack Eckert saying, what's going on here? What's going on? Jack Eckert said, hey, I pulled those out of there because I don't want to be that kind of influence. I'm a Christian now. You know what happened? People's Drugstore, Dart Drugstores, Revco, and finally 7-Eleven said, we don't want that either. Because Jack Eckert took a stand because of Jesus Christ. His life was changed. He repented. He was no longer going in the same direction. It wasn't about money. It was about Jesus Christ and honoring him. More than 11,000 drugstores and 7-Elevens across the nation pulled those magazines out of the store because one man got changed by Jesus Christ. You haven't repented until you see a change in your life. Light and momentary afflictions. We talked about that. Nehemiah envisioned building this building, but he realized there was going to be a lot of work to do. You know what Nehemiah did? Nehemiah began planning. He was praying, but he wasn't just praying sitting on his hands. He began planning. He was expecting God to, to, to rain, expecting God to do something great. It's like praying for rain and carrying an umbrella with you. That's what he was doing. He was planning all the ways to do that. When the king asked a question, he answered the question. <coughs> Let me ask you this. If one of your best friends here at church came up to you today and said, Hey, you've been on my heart and mind this week, and I've been praying for you, but tell me how I can pray for you. Would it take you a long time to figure out what to pray for, or is there something right in front of your mind? There's something right there because, hey, I'm glad you asked because I've been praying about this. I've been praying about this. I've been praying about this. Are you planning and praying in your faith right now for God to move and show you something greater in the future, something more in the future here? You and I need to get busy planning. What are some of the walls that God wants to rebuild in your life? 
Maybe one of some of the journeys that God has for you to carry on. God has something for, for you out there. I've heard this over the years from men and women call me. I, I think God wants to use me. I just thought, well, sure, well, I'll, I'll pray with you. Let's pray together. And all of a sudden, before long, he realizes, she realizes, there's something out here you want me to do. I'm going to be involved here. We're all, going to follow, we're all going to deal with light and momentary afflictions. We all deal with circumstances sometimes that can take us off course. They kind of take our focus off God for a minute. Listen very carefully. It's easy to focus on God and just rejoice and have joy when things are going great. When things are going wrong, you know what happens sometimes? Man, all of a sudden my focus is singular. My focus is up there. love the story told about Jimmy Johnson, coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Don't like that team necessarily, but I'm just kidding. But after the 1992 season, he was he found himself in the Super Bowl in January of 1993. And he realized that most of the guys on his team had never been to the Super Bowl. So he wanted to challenge them. And so he got about an 8-foot 2-by-4, put it on the floor in that team room there, and said, okay, guys, I want every one of you to walk across this 2-by-4. So one by one, they single file, walked it one foot in front of the other, walked across it just perfectly. They all got across it, no problem. Their whole focus was walking across that 2 by 4 to the other side. Piece of cake. Had them all sit down. And then he said, all right, I want you to imagine for a second me putting this 2 by 4 between two skyscrapers 10 feet, 10 stories in the air. A little bit different story, isn't it? You know, you'd, you'd be up there and you'd kind of be worried about falling, wouldn't you? I don't know how many of you would make it across. Probably not most of you would not make it across that. You'd fall. Why? Because you're worried about falling. You're not worried about getting to the other side like you were when I was on the floor here. You're worried about falling. And his illustration was, guys, you're going to be playing in a big forum today with a large crowd, but it's still walking across that two-by-four just like it's on the floor. I want to think about this. How many times when we face these sometimes mammoth afflictions, sometimes light and momentary afflictions, how many times when we're facing those things, all of a sudden we feel like we have to walk across a two-by-four ten stories in the air? God wants you to realize, hey, buddy, with me, I'm going to be holding your hand. It's like you walking across that two-by-four across the floor. We get up there in the, in the ten-foot there, we start worried about falling. When we have some incredible thing, we start worrying and stressing, and anxiety is overpouring out of our lives. So we get up there and realize, hey, God's got it under control. God's got it all under control. Last thing here, Nehemiah faces pessimists. I mentioned it earlier. Samblat, Tobiath, and Geshem. It talks about them here. Verse 10 is where their names first come out in the Scripture. These guys were dead set on not having that wall rebuilt. They were going to be a thorn in Nehemiah's side the entire time he was building that wall. How do we deal with pessimists? We sidestep them. We don't focus on what they're talking about. We focus on the mission. We focus on God up there. We focus on God and where he's taking us. That God has something more for me. I don't want to be brought down. I don't want to get all negative here. Amy and I up in New York last week. And uh, we realized parking up in New York is probably the most expensive thing you do up there. Three hours, 40 bucks. Are you kidding me? So, uh, but you can get eight hours for $50. So we said, well, let's just go bite the bullet, $50. We took taxi cabs. We realized it's going to be a lot cheaper. But uh, I don't know if you've ridden in a taxi cab. These guys have NASCAR down to a science on the streets of New York. I'm here to tell you. And... Uh, uh, I've never put my seatbelt on in the back seat of a taxi before, but Amy sure did. And uh, it was treacherous. And uh, I was amazed that uh, 
there's even some taxi, our, our taxi cab driver was definitely an escort driver, but uh, there were some that were even faster and more rude. Cutting them off, and they'd come around them and then kind of give them the international gesture that they don't like them, and they'd cuss at them and all kinds of bad words. And we had an unusual taxi cab driver. He'd just smile at them, wave. Okay. And I thought, you know, he, for sure he's going to react the same way and beep his horn and run them off the road, and we'd all die or something. But um, it was crazy. But he had, he had the right spirit. Wasn't going to let that person ruin his day. Just wave at him. Beep, beep. See you later. It reminded me of the law of the garbage truck. Okay? The law of the garbage truck. There's some people that are like garbage trucks, unfortunately. I don't know if they mean to. I think maybe they've just accidentally fallen into that thing, but they, they collect a lot of garbage. They're full of frustration sometimes, full of anger, full of disappointment, full of gossip. And unfortunately, they're looking for some place to dump it. I want to tell you this. If you know people like that, I do. If you see them coming, run. Don't let them run into you, okay? Don't let them back into you and dump it all there. Just duck wave, and move on. Wish them well. God bless you. If you have the courage to do so, tell them, you know, I know that hurts your feelings, I know that bothers you, but why don't we pray about that? Why don't we pray about that? Or maybe, hey, I can tell you're really upset about that person. How about if I go with you and let's go talk to that person? Oh, I can't do that. How often do I let trash trucks run over me? I don't want that garbage because why? Because it takes my focus off of God. I get all caught up down here. The Bible is very clear that what we're to do with each other, Sarge mentioned it, love one another. Love one another. It's easy to love the ones lovable. It's harder to love the ones that might not be so lovable. But God wants us to love one another. You know, think about this too. I've shared this with you before. I can get 20 nice comments on a Sunday morning and they get one negative one. What do I go home and think about? The negative ones. I think we're all like that. So I don't want the garbage truck coming along and dumping a whole dump truck load of garbage. I'm praying as a church, as we grow together, every week we experience more of the joy of our salvation. We'd see God in a greater way. We'd realize, hey, God's at work in our family. God's at work in my life. He's teaching me things. Martin Luther said, faith is living. It's a living, daring confidence in God's grace. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. God gave me this grace. God gave me this new life. I'm going to live in a, in a daring way. It's a daring adventure. Remember what Nehemiah said? He said, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we servants will arise and build. Incredible faith. I want to conclude right now, and I want to kind of address our men to start with, but also everybody else in the room today. We have been given an incredible opportunity to lead our families. We've been given an incredible opportunity to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. 
to have our faith grow in such a way as our children see it. I know many men in this room are already doing that. I guess the question for you and for me would be, what's next? What's the next level I can go to in my walk with the Lord? Maybe there's some men here that are new Christians or new to their faith, and they are just starting out in that walk to be that example at home, that spiritual leader at home. And I want you to know that God has help for you. God has a plan for you, too, to, to go in that way. But I want to underline again the three things we talked about here that can stand in the way of our faith growing, but even more important, stand in the way of our children's faith growing. Number one is their identity. It, it, it's, 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 it's huge that our children know who they are and God is throughout this world. And I don't want to be the doomsayer here, but I'm here to tell you if they leave your home and do not know who they are in Christ, you know what? They may struggle for a lot of years, maybe even decades, to figure that out. But while you have them in your house, sitting around your dinner table, under your leadership as a man and as a mother, single moms as well, that you have a great opportunity to demonstrate this. You know, we all know that a lot of times children are not taught so much as what they catch, okay? It's what they catch, seeing at home and seeing what faith looks like in their mom and dad. So we need to make sure that we help our children know their identity. We know we need to know our identity first and foremost. Second thing that we need to understand, light and momentary afflictions, that they're going to come our way, that we need to understand that God is already, he's not surprised when these things come our way. God has already handled it, but you know what? It's an experience for you and I to grow in our faith. God's looking down, and it can be either a test or a trial. God's looking down to say, hey, I'm going to give you this little test right now in your life. I'm going to allow it to come into your life. I'm going to see how you handle that test if you pass it. The third thing is here that we need to avoid pessimists. You know, we are all very cautious to make sure that our children have the right friends and we don't let negative people come into their life and hurt them. We need to do the same thing in our life. But also we need to make sure that we're being edified ourselves and growing ourselves. We're putting people in our life that build us up as opposed to constantly talking about something negative or something that I don't need to talk about or don't need to hear about. What am I going to do with a cross? 